Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. This is the Friday, March 10th edition, as brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Hopp, your reader, filling in. We'll spend the next hour together, and we're going to take a look at some of these headlines before we get into the forecast here in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Well, starting off with UI Athletics to repay taxpayers, State had covered $2 million of the $4.2 million deal to settle discrimination suit filed by ex-football players. Tycoon Awakens for St. Patty's Celebrations. Cedar Rapids Bar offers prime window seats for watching the Sapa da Paso Parade. Okay, we'll learn more about that. An auditor slams bill that would limit state watchdog. Lawmaker says it will protect Iowans' personal information. That's a story by Aaron Murphy. And I don't think Rob Sand is too happy about it. Uh, These stories and more, but uh, first a check of your forecast here from the National Weather Service. You can expect for the rest of today mostly cloudy conditions, but some sunshine out there peeking through the clouds, a high of 38 degrees. Those winds from the northwest, 5 to 10 miles per hour. For tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 26. Saturday rain afternoon, a high near 37. Uh, Chance of precipitation is 80%, so uh, watch out. Up to a quarter of an inch of rain possible. A high of 37 Saturday. Saturday night, snow possibly mixed with rain before midnight, then a slight chance of snow and a low around 29 degrees. Sunday, mostly cloudy, a high near 36. Looking through the start of next week, Monday, mostly cloudy, high near 33. Tuesday, sunny, 36. Wednesday, mostly cloudy, 48. It's going to get nicer through the week, uh, moving towards St. Patty's Day. A 30% chance of rain on Thursday of next week. Partly sunny, a high near 51 as we uh, warm our way back up. Spring's approaching, everyone, and we can't wait. But again, for today, your Friday. Expect mostly cloudy conditions, some sunshine out there. We might be seeing that right now. A high of 38 degrees in the Cedar Rapids area. Our first headline, UI Athletics to Repay Taxpayers, stated covered $2 million of $4.2 million deal to settle discrimination Suit filed by ex-football players. It's written by Vanessa Miller, Dateline, Iowa City. University of Iowa Athletics will pay back the state for $2 million that taxpayers covered of a $4.2 million deal to settle a discrimination lawsuit. Twelve former football players filed against UI Athletics and its coaches. UI President Barbara Wilson said Thursday morning, I appreciate the work and due diligence of the Iowa Attorney General and State Appeals Board, Wilson said in a statement. After listening to the concerns of Iowans and in consultation with the Board of Regents leadership, I have determined that the University of Iowa Department of Athletics will reimburse the state general fund for the $2 million due to the recent settlement. That decision amounts to an about-phase for the campus, according to Iowa State Treasurer Roby Smith, who issued his own statement Thursday afternoon reporting he had met with Attorney General staffers Monday. During that meeting, I was informed that the University of Iowa and Board of Regents refused to pay the full amount of the settlement, but was told voters or voting no on the proposed settlement would force the case to trial and open Iowa taxpayers up to millions more in potential future liabilities, Smith said. The State Appeal Board on Monday voted 2-1 to one to settle the 2020 lawsuit and fund nearly half the payout with taxpayer dollars from the state's general fund. UI covered the remaining $2.175 million. 
State Auditor Rob Sand was the sole vote against the settlement, saying he wouldn't support using taxpayer dollars so long as UI Athletics Director Gary Barta remained in charge. Given UI Athletics has been involved in several other discrimination settlements in recent years, both Smith and Department of Management Director Craig Paulson voted for the deal. Although Smith, like Sand, urged UI to change its athletics leadership and reiterated that call Thursday. I applaud President Wilson and the Board of Regents for reversing course and requiring the University of Iowa Athletics Department to cover costs related to the settlement. But I would also renew my call for President Wilson to re-examine the university's relationship with Mr. Barta, he said. Contracts and Salaries UI President Wilson hasn't answered questions about Barta's employment and demands from the state auditor he be removed. Barta, age 59, made $1.2 million in the 2022 budget year and is making an annual base wage of $650,000 through June of 2024. His possible annual bonuses include up to $40,000 if student-athletes achieve academic marks and up to $55,000 if the department achieves operational and financial stewardship goals, and up to $55,000 more for meeting goals established by the UI president. The deferred compensation package outlined in Barter's most recent contract extension signed in August 2019 would pay him $1.4 million. His contract states Barta can be terminated for cause, including a serious or prolonged failure to perform the duties, program violations of NCAA or Big Ten rules, or violation of regents or UI policy involving dishonesty, moral turpitude, or conflict of interest, among other things. If terminated for cause... UI would have to give Barta 30 days' notice and pay him his base wage through the date of termination. If he's let go without cause, UI would have to pay Barta 24 months of his base wage, or $1.3 million, plus a chunk of his deferred compensation. UI head football coach Kirk Ferentz made $6.9 million in the 2022 budget year. His son and offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz made $1.1 million that year. UI Athletics in 2022 generated its most ever income at $126.8 million, nearly $10 million over budget. It's expecting even more revenue in the current year, $129 million, including $22.8 million in football income. Lawmakers respond. Lawmakers on Wednesday introduced House Study Bill 229, mandating Iowa's public universities reimburse the state for costs associated with settlements tied to athletics. The bill, which lawmakers are continuing to pursue, even after Wilson's statement, would require reimbursement for any award or judgment tied to conduct or actions of an employee of an athletic department of a public university, and money used to cover the reimbursement could not come from state appropriations. After reading Wilson's statement to lawmakers Thursday in which she committed to reimbursing the state for its portion of the recent $4.2 million settlement, a Regents representative noted UI Athletics is self-sustaining and does not receive any tuition revenue or tax revenue. The UI main campus did, however, loan its athletics department $50 million in June of 2021 to help with COVID-related losses. As of July 2022, UI Athletics had paid back the campus $3 million. Representative Carter Nordman, Republican of Adel, on Thursday thanked UI President Wilson for committing the reimbursement but indicated taxpayers never should have been billed for any part.
I'm not sure without the pressure of Iowans and some members in the legislature if this would have came about, Nordman said. I do appreciate the university and their self-evaluation and understanding. The taxpayers should not be on the hook for $2 million here. Auditor Sand agreed but said Thursday he's delighted that President Wilson listened to the concerns that led to my vote against the BARDA settlement. And I am delighted that she looked or listened to the outcry from taxpayers who wanted real accountability. And I would like a copy of that check mailed to this room, 111, in the state capitol building. Farron's response, following news of the settlement, which included non-monetary terms like providing tuition support for the 12 players who sued, offering mental health counseling for a year, sending 10 student-athletes to the annual Black Student-Athlete Summit, and hiring a diversity consultant, Kirk Ferentz issued a statement disparaging the deal. I am greatly disappointed in how this legal matter was resolved, Ferentz said in his statement. The settlement negotiations took place between Plaintiff's Counsel and the Iowa Attorney General's Office, which represents the University of Iowa and the Board of Regents. These discussions took place entirely without the knowledge or consent of the coaches who were named in the lawsuit. In fact, the parties originally named disagree with the decision to settle, fully believing that the case would have been dismissed with prejudice before trial. Farron said his program has been unfairly and negatively impacted by these allegations for more than two years. Members of the staff had their character and reputation tarnished by former members of our team who said things, then recounted, recanted many statements when questioned under oath. All right, that story. That's our first story. Moving on to story number two. Tycoon awakens here on the front page for St. Patty's celebrations. Cedar Rapids Bar offers primetime window seats for watching the Sa Pa Da Pa So Parade. Written by Diana Nolan of the Gazette, Dateline Cedar Rapids. Kurt Ludke has never seen the Sa Pa Da Pa So Parade from start to finish. He's been too busy tending the parade of revelers who come through his door for prime viewing seats and thirst quenchers at the Tycoon on the corner of 5th Street and 2nd Avenue Southeast. These days, he only opens the bar touted as Cedar Rapids' longest surviving nightclub for special occasions, including St. Patrick's Day, the summertime downtown market after dark, and New Year's Eve. This year, he's opening three times to mark St. Patrick's celebrations beginning Saturday to coincide with the annual parade that snakes its way from 6th Street, turning down 2nd Avenue to 1st Street, then back up 3rd Avenue, ending on 5th Street behind the Cedar Rapids Public Library. He'll open back up March 17th and 18th from 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. all three days. Fat Wally's Pool Hall, Game Room, and Bar in the Basement, which is open daily, will be open for the holiday celebrations as well. Beer will be flowing from cans, not taps, since leftover cans have a longer shelf life. And even though the beer won't be green, the Tycoon's signature drink will be. Ludke describes the glowing leprechaun as a blend of different alcohols garnished with a green glow stick. He's also whipping up his secret Bloody Mary brew. Mixed drinks will be available, too, and a DJ will spin the tunes on the dance floor. Patrons who haven't stepped inside the Tycoon in a while will see some welcome changes. A ramp has replaced the steps leading from street level to bar level, and a wall by the waitstaff station has been removed, opening up the space. 
Best of all, the restrooms tucked along the 5th Street side have been removed and rebuilt in a larger space at the back of the building. No more congestion up front as people wait in line. Plus, that far former space has been turned into table seating with window and dance floor views. And the new restrooms by the back bar are larger, brighter, modern, and accessible. Everything is ADA compliant, Key said. Plenty of history still shines through the space. Built in 1915, it's been home to the Parlor City Billiards Hall, then Duck Pin Bowling, both in the basement, the Lincoln Lanes Bowling Alley upstairs, and an auto dealer repair and parts shop compete with large garage doors. The original pressed tin ceiling has been painted black. Some original floor tiling is still underfoot, and the oak woodwork throughout the tycoon has been polished to a rich luster. See how it shines? This is the original what it looked like when it was brand new, Ludke said. He opened the Tycoon in 1983, sold it in 1995, bought it back and reopened it in 2012, and now just opens that space on a limited basis. Following a three-year renovation, he opened Fat Wally's in the basement in 1997. Ludke is at Fat Wally's every day, open to close. He said he's met a lot of nice young people that way. He also loves hearing stories from the old Tycoon's patrons, old and new, but is happy with that bar's limited hours. I made the decision that I just didn't want to deal with it on a regular basis, he said, so I just decided that the most popular events were the best times to open up. St. Patrick's Day, the late night farmer's market, and New Year's. Some people think I should open up for the 4th of July, but that's such a family thing, so I've never pursued that. He enjoys the tradition of being open for St. Patrick's Day. It's worth my while to do it, he said, noting that he expects to reach the bar's capacity of 500 patrons. It's been such a tradition to be open with the windows. People get to sit in here no matter whether it's raining or snowing. People really enjoy the windows. I've always looked at St. Patrick's Day, or as the way around here people want to say, they're celebrating the coming of spring, leaving winter behind us, hopefully. All right, next up, a story by Aaron Murphy. Auditor slams bill that would limit state watchdog. Lawmaker says it will protect Iowans' personal information. Dateline Des Moines. Limits would be placed on what personal information the state taxpayer's watchdog could demand during an audit under legislation being advanced by state lawmakers. How Senate File 478 would impact the state auditor's ability to conduct investigations in an independent, nonpartisan fashion is the subject of stark disagreement between the current state auditor and the lawmaker who crafted the legislation. Senator Mike Busillot, Republican of Ankeny, said the legislation was designed to protect the privacy of Iowans' personal information and to clarify questions that were raised during a 2021 Iowa Supreme Court case that pondered the auditor's authority. However, Iowa Auditor Rob Sand, a Democrat, insisted the proposal would severely restrict the office's ability to perform audits. A bipartisan coalition of state auditors and the leader of the national organization that represents state auditors agrees with him. Sands said during a Thursday news conference at the Capitol, the proposal would embolden the subjects of state audits to withhold information that is necessary to complete investigations, hampering the office's ability to root out government malfeasance. Sand also warned that if 
agencies withhold information, the auditor's office may not be able to complete investigations, which would jeopardize federal funding for some state programs. This bill would give veto power to anyone who doesn't want us to look at what they're doing with taxpayer money, Sand said. I'm not pulling your chain about how serious this is. This bill is a big mistake that can have catastrophic impacts for the state's financial situation, as well as allowing waste, fraud, and abuse to be hidden by whoever's conducting it. The Iowa Senate passed the bill earlier this week with only Republican support. It is now eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. What's proposed? Under the proposal, the auditor's office during an audit could not demand 11 types of personal information, including criminal files, law enforcement investigative documents, income tax returns, medical files, public health records, educational records, and any other personal information that an individual would reasonably expect to be kept private or is unnecessary for the audit. The auditor's office could get that information only if the office proves it is relevant to the audit The party being investigated agrees to hand over the information, and the information is altered so individuals cannot be identified. Busilot said he wrote that the bill to answer questions raised during a 2021 Iowa Supreme Court case involving the auditor's office subpoena of records from the University of Iowa regarding its $1 billion 50-year lease of its utility system. In that case, the court considered the scope of audits and authority of the state auditor's office. The Supreme Court, in that case, ruled unanimously in the auditor's office's favor. This is about protecting privacy. Privacy isn't partisan, Busilot said in a statement. The bill answers questions raised by the Iowa Supreme Court in 2021. When an audit begins, what information is confidential and how disputes are resolved. The bill ensures the auditor has access to relevant information in an audit, but confidential personal information is protected. Yuslov said he presented the proposed legislation to the state treasurer and the Department of Management, both led by Republicans, and to the Iowa Board of Regents and to the private accounting firms. I have full faith this legislation complies with government auditing standards while protecting Iowa's privacy, he said, noting these auditing standards are referenced in the bill. Pushback, Sand and other state auditors, both Democrat and Republican, disagree and say the proposal would hinder the auditor's office's ability to conduct audits. A letter from the National Auditors Association, written by the organization's president and signed by 26 other state auditors, says the proposal would negatively impact the auditor's ability to independently and sufficiently perform his audit work. State, pro- state auditors should have unfettered access to confidential records to ensure that state agencies are following their policies and procedures and state and federal law, the letter stated. This is also necessary to ensure that we prevent waste, fraud, and abuse of state programs and funds. State auditors also have the immense responsibility to guard against disclosure of any confidential information. It is a responsibility we take seriously. All right, everyone, that takes care of all of our front page news. We move on to page 2A of the Gazette, Iowa Today, debt increasing for school lunch programs. End of free federal meals, inflation impacting lower income families. This story by Grace King of the Gazette, Dateline, Cedar Rapids. Some families in the College Community School District and other Iowa districts are struggling to buy school breakfast and lunch for their kids. And the College Community District is carrying a much higher debt for the reduced 
price meal program where lower-income parents can't pay the balance owed. Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, recently introduced House File 575, which proposed allocating $1.1 million in state funds to cover the money owed for reduced-price meals, though the bill's prospects appear dim in the Republican-controlled legislature. The College Community School District in southwest Cedar Rapids has an unpaid meal debt of around $14,000, much higher than the $1,000 or less in previous years, said Jenny Scott, the district's director of nutritional services. The proposed state funding would be a great start, Scott said. A lot of our families qualify for reduced-price meals. Even though prices are 30 cents for breakfast and 40 cents for lunch, sometimes they're still not able to afford it. Inflation, she said, has had a big impact on families' ability to make ends meet. They're just making choices. You don't want your heat or your lights to be turned off. Your students can eat a meal at school, and you might not have to pay it right away. We've seen a rise this year in parents not allowing their children to charge meals, but also not sending meals, knowing that those kids are going hungry. Since 2018, Iowa has required schools to feed all students who want a school breakfast and lunch if a household does not or cannot pay for the meals. The school nutrition program carries the debt. Since school nutrition programs are self-funded, it turns our department into a collection agency, Scott said. The only way for that debt to be paid off is if the parents say pay it or we can apply donations to those balances. That's a slippery slope because donations aren't always there and the meal debt continues to grow. School meals. During the 2021-22 school year in Iowa, 40% of all students qualified for free and reduced-priced school meals through the National School Lunch Program. Free school meals are provided children in households with incomes below 130% of the federal poverty level or those receiving supplemental nutrition assistance programs or SNAP benefits, formerly known as food stamps or temporary assistance for needy families. Those with family incomes between 130% and 185% of the poverty line qualify for reduced-price meals. In the college community district, about 3.32% of students, or 204 kids, qualify for reduced-price meals, Scott said. End of free federal meals. During the pandemic, schools provided free meals to students for two years, from March of 2020 through June of 2022. Since the program ended, schools are seeing fewer students eat breakfast and lunch at school. Before the pandemic, Iowa had one of the lowest rates of participation in school breakfast programs in the nation. Meg Brink, food program consultant with the Cedar Rapids-based Grant Wood Area Education Agency, said when meals were free, the number of Iowa students participating in school breakfast programs increased by 45 percent and lunch participation increased 7 percent. That's more kids who were able to eat with us, who were fueled up and ready to learn, Brink said. In the college community district, participation in the school meal program increased by approximately 50% when meals were free, Scott said. Just a few extra dollars of income a year can mean a family no longer qualifies for reduced-price lunch. There are families that are just $6 over from qualifying for a reduced-price meal, Brink said. The numbers. Since free meals ended, breakfast participation in the college community schools has dropped from 1,000 students a day to 700. About 1,000 fewer students are participating in school lunches, Scott said. In Cedar Rapids schools, almost 50% of students qualify for free lunch, 
and up to 5% qualify for reduced price lunches, said Jennifer Hook, Cedar Rapids Schools Nutrition Services Director. Of the district's 32 schools, 24 of them qualify for the Federal Community Eligibility Provision Program, which allows them to offer free breakfast and lunch to every student. In Iowa City schools, 5,700 students qualify for free lunch and 545 qualify for reduced price lunch, said Allison Demery, Nutrition Services Director for the Iowa City Community School District. We would welcome any assistance, Demery said. Our goal is to feed kids, not to be bill collectors. When you take away barriers to meals, the ultimate outcome is nourishing minds. Legislative Prospects Sheets said he hopes his school meal funding bill will be revived this legislative session after not making it through the first legislative funnel deadline last week. In his proposed bill, all K-12 Iowa schools that participate in a U.S. Department of Agriculture school meal program, including private and charter schools, would be eligible for the funding. But Representative Gary Moore, Republican of Bettendorf, chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, said he is not planning on resurrecting the bill. It would be unfair, he said, to do that for one bill and not for the other bills that failed to gain traction in the House. All right, that's the only story on page 2A. Moving on now to page 3A. UI Healthcare Union ratifies strongest contract in years. Contract will include a 6% total raise over two years. And this might run a little long. If it does, well, we'll just go into our halfway point after that. This story by Vanessa Miller, Dateline, Iowa City. The union representing 3,800 University of Iowa healthcare workers has announced the ratification of its strongest contract for our members in Iowa since the changes to Chapter 20 in 2017. Referring to the legislature's stripping of collective bargaining rights six years ago, limiting mandatory negotiations to wages alone for most public unions, the Services Employee International Union Local 199 on Wednesday evening shared its new contract uh, will include a 6% total raise over two years. The contract, according to SEIU, removes maximum salary caps, guarantees salary minimums, and continues union protections in the workplace at University of Iowa Healthcare. When we fight, we win, union representatives posted on social media. The union's previous two-year contract expiring June 30th did not increase minimum salaries and provided returning employees a 1.3% pay raise in each of the contract's two years, totaling 2.6% over the term. To start negotiations in January, the union representing 3,871 UIHC employees, including nurses, therapists, and other health care workers, asked for a 14% pay raise the first year, followed by a 12% increase the following year. The union also wanted the board to work back into its contract terms tied to vacation, extra time compensation, and safety in the workplace, among other things. The board declined to budge from its original offer of 1.5% minimum raise and 3% bump for returning employees in each of the next two years, declaring an impasse when union representatives didn't initially accept the offer. That declaration initially prompted the union to file a prohibited practice complaint against the Board of Regents with the state's Public Employment Relations Board. The board cannot simply declare an impasse, Attorney Emily Schott Hood told board negotiators on behalf of the UIHC union in an email at the time. 
My client had room to move on mandatory subjects of bargaining, so I'm not confident that we meet the legal definition of impasse. It's disheartening to see that your client is refusing to bargain in good faith. Despite that discord, negotiators this week celebrated hard-fought wins. Your bargaining team fought hard in negotiations to press the regents on the need for changes. Higher wages, guarantees of safer staffing ratios, safety procedures that meet the growing trend of violence against healthcare workers, and more, and were met with silence or dismissals, according to SEIU a Facebook post. We are not done fighting, but we also recognize the need for celebration after such a hard-fought win as this contract. This could not have happened without members working hard in and outside the workplace to spread awareness and showing up in the cold and wind to picket. And we are just about there at our halfway point. Uh, we are approaching that. So we'll tell you that you're listening to this uh, reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. This is the Friday, March 10th edition is brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. I'm your reader today, Andrew Haupt, filling in. All materials heard here on IRIS are intended for the use of our audience. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833 or toll-free at one 877 Now let's take a look at today's obituaries here in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And there are a page and a half of obituaries, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started with these. Starting off with Glenda Lee Myers of Cedar Rapids, age 85, died Thursday, March the 9th, 2023. A visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 11th at the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A graveside service will take place at 2 p.m. Monday, March 13th at Howell County Memorial Cemetery in Pomona, Missouri. Glenda was born November 25, 1937 in Des Moines, Iowa, the daughter of Alfred Clark, Maxine Elliott, and Ralph Mason. She was a member of the Assemblies of God Church. Glenda enjoyed going to garage sales and attended church functions. Above all else, she loved spending time with her family. Survivors include her children, Daryl married to Angela Cannon, James Cannon, and Danny Cannon, and several grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, daughter Deborah Waddle, son Mark Fox Douglas, grandchildren Alicia Ross, Cassandra Bell, and... Trampus Bell, a sister in infancy, Sharon, and sister Donna Keith. Memorials may be directed to the family or Iowa Donor Network. The family would like to extend a special thank you to the staff at Heritage Specialty Care and Melissa, Deb, and Amanda and the hospice care team. Please share a memory of Glenda at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. From there, we go to Joan W. Sammons of Cedar Rapids. Joan W. Sammons, age 90 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Monday, February 27, 2023, surrounded by her loving family. Joan was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on June 15, 1932, to William and Doris Rao. She graduated from McKinley High School in 1949. She was very proud of her family. She she adored raising her six children, spending time with them, and imparting her wisdom on them. In 1978, she started working at the Cedar Rapids Community Theater and continued to do so until her retirement in 2012. She cherished her time working at the theater and all of the wonderful people she met through it. Joan had a fantastic sense of humor and a sharp wit. She loved to laugh and could find humor in any moment. 
She was an avid reader and a frequent visitor of the Cedar Rapids Public Library. She was a fierce Democrat and champion of women's rights. She took great pride in advocating for a number of progressive and social causes. Jonah survived by her sister, Mary Lou Seiler, her children, David Ritchie, married to Joellen, John Ritchie, married to Julie, Robert, married to Sonia, Christine Jacobson, and Kathleen Biderman, married to Christopher, 14 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and many extended family members, and dearly valued friends. She was preceded in death by her parents, her brother Howard Hilton, brother-in-law Roy Seeler, and her daughter Anne Kem. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Theater Cedar Rapids. From there we go to Deborah Leah Bierman of Decorah. With great sorrow and bittersweet gratitude, the Bierman Noonmaker family announced the passing of our beautiful, kind, exceptionally strong, brave, and incredibly generous wife, mother, and grandmother, sister, and friend, Deborah Leah Bierman of Decorah, Iowa. Deb passed away peacefully, surrounded by her husband and six children, on March 5, 2023, at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics in Madison, Wisconsin, due to complications of COVID-19 compounded by her underlying chronic medical conditions. Deborah was born to Bruce and Donna Noonmaker on January 27, 1959 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She attended Regis High School, graduating in 1978, and completed her degree in cosmetology at Capri College in Cedar Rapids. Through her brother Jerry's band and his friendship with Scott Bierman, Deb met the love of her life, who later became her husband, on May 16, 1987, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua, Iowa. Scott and Deb moved to Decorah, Iowa in 1992, where they raised their six children and where they resided at the time of Deb's passing. In her mid-adult years, Deb developed a rare debilitating lung disease, chronic interstitial pneumonitis slash pneumonia of undetermined etiology, suspected due to an unspecified autoimmune connective tissue disorder. In September of 2011, she was blessed with a lung transplant. Deb and her family are forever grateful to the unknown organ donor who graced Deb and with 11 and a half additional and wonderful years of life. Deb's greatest joy in life was her family. Family meant everything to her, just as she meant and continues to mean everything to them. Deb's love for her family did not stop at the people within it. Her love was equally displayed toward her chihuahuas and numerous grand pets. Deb truly enjoyed nature and found happiness watching the deer, birds, and other wildlife frequent her and her husband's beautiful country property. Deb had a passion for music and singing. She almost always had music playing, sometimes leaving one song on repeat for an entire car ride or for hours on end while working around the house. Her family has fond memories of lengthy phone calls with her where she would break the brief silence by singing along to the song she was listening to. Her beautiful voice is surely missed. Deb also enjoyed cooking and baking, often sharing numerous recipes with her family and friends on social media, shopping, although rarely for herself, and more often for others. Long phone calls with loved ones, even if it was about nothing at all, trips to the apple orchard with her husband, and pumpkin patches with her children and grandchildren, playing canasta, watching movies, especially with family, 
and genuinely appeared to display the most joy when serving or caring for others, even with her medical struggles. Deb provided unbeatable care for her loved ones. Her nurturing, kind, selfless, and giving nature was next to none. She was the most dedicated friend, partner, and confidant. To know her was to love her, and to meet her was finding a best friend or surrogate mother. She will be forever missed. Deb is survived by her loving husband, Dr. Scott Bierman of Decorah, Iowa, children Holly, married to Amy Petrick of Rochester, Minnesota, Cammie Frazier of Marion, Iowa, Brittany Meyer married to Joe Schumacher of Cedar Falls, Iowa, Jordan married to Samantha Bierman of Center Point, Iowa, Justin Bierman of Decorah, Iowa, and Dylan Bierman of Luana, Iowa, Grandchildren Taylor, Carter, Jace, and Colt Bierman, Blake and Anna Bartelt, Brinley and Madeline Meyer, London Frazier, River Petrich, and Vivian and Evelyn Shoemaker. Schumacher. Three brothers, Mike married to Deb Noonmaker, Dave Noonmaker, and Jerry married to Tina Noonmaker, sister Sheila married to Roger Townsend, as well as many cousins, nieces, nephews, dear friends, her chihuahua Bella, and many grand pets. Deb was preceded in death by her parents, Bruce and Donna Cruz Noonmaker, her parents-in-law, Lee and Luann Pickard Bierman, her sister Barbara Ostern, her brother Bruce Noonmaker Jr., her sister-in-law Kathy Noonmaker, as well as beloved cousins, nieces, nephews, Dear friends and cherished chihuahuas, Peanut and Coco. Family and friends are invited to attend a celebration of life, which will be held on Tuesday, March 14th, beginning with a vigil service at 4 p.m. and visitation from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, located at 1844 1st Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. The funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, March 15th at St. Jude's Catholic Church, 50 Edgewood Road, northwest in Cedar Rapids, followed by burial in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be directed in Deborah's name to the UW Health Transplant Center at www.wiscmedicine.org backslash ways to give. Those unable to attend are invited to watch service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Deb's tribute wall and share your support and memories with her family at www. StuartBaxter.com under obituaries. From there, we go to David William Gerber of Marion. David William Gerber, age 89, of Marion, Iowa, died March 8, 2023, at Hiawatha Care Center. David was born on August 25, 1933, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the son of Clarence and Ella Crawling Gerber. He married Joan Beretta on September 19, 1953. He served with the U.S. Army in Korea from 1953 to 1955. David was employed by Iowa Electric Light and Power for 35 years, retiring in 1992. David was a member at First Presbyterian Church in Marion. He enjoyed antique cars and tractors. Survivors include his wife of 69 years, Joan, a son, Gary, married to Lynn Gerber of Timbo, Arkansas, daughter Connie, married to Kent Shalotti of Missouri, three grandsons, Daniel Gerber, Logan Gerber, and Colby Gerter, and seven great-grandchildren. Public visitation and services will not be held. Online condolences are welcome at www. .cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. From there we go to 
Janet Sue DeWoody Schultz of Marion. Janet Sue DeWoody Schultz, age 86, of Marion, Iowa, died peacefully on Wednesday, March 8, 2023, at Hallmar Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories on Sunday, March 12th, from 10 to 11 a.m., immediately followed by a memorial service at 11 a.m. Chaplain Kyle French will officiate. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website under the obituary for Janet under the video tab starting at 11 a.m. Sunday, March 12th. Jan was born October 1, 1936 in Mount Vernon, Iowa. She was a woman of faith dedicated to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jan married her high school sweetheart, Wallace L. D. Woody, on June 10, 1956. They celebrated 52 years of marriage before Wally's passing in 2008. Wally and Jan were longtime residents of Marion, Iowa, where they raised their six children. Julie married to Carl Rosenberg of Cedar Rapids. Tammy married to Dan Drexler of Swisher. Gwendolyn married to Mark Graybill of Leander, Texas. Molly married to Shane Grossi of Denver, Iowa. Bradley married to Bonnie DeWoody of Marion. And Todd married to Emily DeWoody of Indian Harbor Beach, Florida. Jan was a loving wife, mother, and grandmother. She stayed closely connected to her family as it continued to grow to include 18 grandchildren. Madeline married to Zach Garcia, Lucy Rosenberg, Fritz Rosenberg, Carly married to Tim Lipsius, Casey married to Tricia Drexler, Quentin married to Chastity Offerman, James married to Nicole Offerman, Ashley married to Trent Folkman, her last name is Garriston. Brooklyn married to Kale Padima, Joshua Garriston, Chelsea Garrison, Bobby Gross, Bo Gross, Caitlin D. Woody, Cadence D. Woody, Cooper D. Woody, Landon, Gordon, and Maya D. Woody. And 12 great grandchildren Paisley, Lipsius, Haley Ganfield, Mason Drexler. Ethan Drexler, Hunter Offerman, Drake Offerman, Jace Offerman, Avery Offerman, Kelsey Offerman, McKinley Offerman, Emerson Folkman, and Amara Folkman. The list of survivors also includes Jan's sister, Geraldine Stolba of Marion, Iowa, and many nieces and nephews. Jan married Walter L. Schultz on November 28, 2009. Her family continued to grow as this union added three stepchildren. Roger married to Carla Schultz. Sue married to Mark Mayer, and Jenny married to John Shamov, her last name, Schultz. Four step-grandchildren, John married to Nicole Schultz, Kate Schultz, Mark married to Erica Schultz, and Jacob Maher. Two step-great-grandchildren, Molly Schultz and Claire Schultz. Jan and Walt spent their 13 years of marriage residing between Marion, Iowa, and Apache Junction, Arizona. Jan was preceded in death by her husband, Wallace D. Woody, her parents, John and Ursula Lawrence, her two brothers, Jack and Everett Lawrence, and infant twin grandchildren, Brandon and Brittany D. Woody. The family liked to express their sincere and heartfelt thank you to the staff of Mercy's Hospice Services, as well as the staff of Hallmar Mercy, for the care and comfort they provided Jan in her final year. Memorials in Jan's memory may be directed to the Mercy Foundation at www.mercycare.org backslash ways to give designated to the hospice of mercy fund or hallmar mercy medical center 
Please share a message, tribute, or memory of Jan on our online guestbook at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. So there we go to Maureen Elizabeth Salat of Spearfish, South Dakota. Maureen Elizabeth Salat, age 78 of Spearfish, passed away peacefully surrounded by family in the comfort of her own home on March 2, 2023. Maureen was born to Oakley and Elizabeth Rowe and raised in a large family in Norway, Iowa. She met and married the love of her life, Ronald Salat. For 59 years, they lived, loved, and laughed together. She is survived by her loving husband, Ronald Salat, her two children, Todd married to Shay Salat and Valerie married to Donald Richards, and her two grandchildren, Natalie married to Tori McLaughlin and Cole Richards. She's also survived by her two sisters, Ellen married to Mark Cushino and Kathy Schmid, along with many nieces, nephews, cousins, and in-laws. Maureen was laid to rest during a private graveside service in the St. Michael Cemetery in Norway, Iowa. From there, we go to Lori M. Bruner of Middle Amana. Lori M. Bruner, age 56, of Middle Amana, passed away peacefully at her home, surrounded by her loving family, on Thursday, March 9, 2023. Funeral service is at 10 a.m. Monday, March 13th, at the United Methodist Church of Oxford, with Pastor Terry Belts officiating. Visitation will be from 3 to 7 p.m. Sunday, March 12th, at the United Methodist Church in Oxford. Inurment will be at a later date at the Genoa or Genoa Bluff Cemetery of rural Ladora. A memorial fund has been established. Closter Funeral Home of Marengo is assisting the family with arrangements. Lori, the daughter of Larry G. and Karen M. Heitman Bischoff, was born on November 3, 1966. She grew up by Watkins at Homestead. Lori graduated from Amana High School in 1984. She worked at the Ronberg Amana Refrigeration Colony Inn Restaurant and Seven Villages, all of Amana, as well as Nordstrom in Cedar Rapids. On June 26, 1993, she married Brian P. Bruner of Middle Amana, in Middle Amana. Of this union, they had three children. Lori enjoyed baking for her friends and family, gardening, mowing, and canning. She loved her faithful animal companions, Bentley, Brady, Precious, and Bojangles. Most of all, Lori was a devoted wife, mom, grandmother, and sister. Left to cherish her memory is her husband, Brian, of 29 years, three children, Kyle, Jordan, with fiancé, James, Tolly, and Justin, three grandchildren, Malik, Melani, and Apollo, her mother-in-law, Carolee Bruner, siblings, Mike married to Susie Bischoff, Michelle married to Gary Whelan, Carrie married to Terry Dietrich, Janelle Curry, Suzanne Schmaker, Joy married to Alan Bowers, Roger married to Clara Bruner, Gary Bruner, Ron married to Judy Bruner, Ross married to Deb Bruner, Barb Bruner and Chris Bruner, and many nieces and nephews. Lori had many, many friends, but had five really, really close ones. Kelsey Jasper, Jolene Jones, Sherry Curry, Joan Bratz, and Mike Lint. She was preceded in death by her parents, Larry and Karen Bischoff, her stepdad, Dave Ramsey, her parents-in-law, Robert and Phyllis Bruner, a sister-in-law, Janet Davidson, and brothers-in-law, Mike Schmaker and Sam Curry. The family would like to thank the staff at the University of Iowa, Essence of, University of Iowa Hospital, Essence of Life Hospice, and her sister, Joy, for taking such good care of Lori. Online condolences may be left at www.klosterfuneralhome.com. 
From there, we go to Ronald Wayne Trader of St. Joseph, Missouri. Ronald Wayne Trader, age 67, was from Cedar Rapids but moved to St. Joseph, Missouri years ago. Ron is survived by his siblings, Juanita married to Bill McNabb, Joe married to Dan Hurt, David married to Sheila Pearson, and Ben married to Mona Pearson. Brother-in-law Jack Krimmel and many nieces and nephews. Ron never had any kids of his own, so all of his nieces and nephews held a special place in his heart. He was preceded to death by his parents, Melvin Pearson and Lorraine, married to Jean Kiefer. Sister, Patricia Krimmel, brothers Robert Pearson and Cecil Pearson, one niece and four nephews. He will be missed by his family and friends. We have some death notices to bring you finally here. In Cedar Rapids, Patricia M. Day, age 86, died Sunday, March 5th, 2023. The Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home of Cedar Rapids is in charge of arrangements. In Clarence, Marjorie Norton, age 94, died Thursday, March 9th. The Chapman Funeral Home of Clarence is in charge of arrangements. From Iowa City, Mardine Charlotte Price, age 96, who died Wednesday, March 8th. It is not list a funeral home. From Randalia, Edward L. Ed Jensen Sr., age 62, died Wednesday, March 8, 2023. The Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home of Maynard is in charge of arrangements. Other deaths include Darlis Riley, age 85, of Fort Dodge, formerly of Cedar Rapids, died Sunday, March 5, 2023. The Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids are in charge of arrangements there. And that concludes our obituaries for today. And there were a lot. So that leads us now to uh, move on to the sports section here briefly while we have time. We're talking boys basketball state tournament. Xavier rolls into Class 3A championship game. Saints have right mix of players to topple Crusaders. Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. This story by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette. What do you get when you combine three basketball-only kids with some football kids who know how to win? A state championship boys basketball team. At least a state championship game, boys basketball team. Going to have to wait until later today to find out if that first deal holds true. Cedar Rapids Xavier is the club being talked about. The Saints making their way to the Class 3A Finals Thursday afternoon with a convincing 72-59 semifinal win over Sioux City Heelan at Wells Fargo Arena. Xavier has a pair of tremendous hoops-only players in senior wing Aiden Yamalkoski and junior point guard Joe Bean. Six foot eight junior center Tyler Nidalicki has become an interior presence. Joseph Lemker, Thomas Sundell, Aiden McDermott, and Michael Cunningham are the gridiron guys, significant parts of Xavier's state championship football team in the fall. Those eight guys all contributed in a very good performance here in which Xavier, with a 20 and 6 record, led from start to finish, almost from start to finish, truthfully. Heelan, with a 19-7 record, got the first points of this game on a three-pointer, but Xavier rattled off the next 15 and never trailed after that. It has just meshed together well, said Lemker, who hit a couple of rally-killing shots in the second half and scored 19 points overall. We all play together well. We know each other well. We get along really well. They support us in football and we do what we can on the basketball court. There's just a good family bond to this team that carries over. 
Top-seeded, top-ranked Bondurant Farrar with a 25-0 record is Xavier's championship game opponent this afternoon at 5. The Saints are seeking that impressive football-basketball double in their first basketball championship since going back-to-back in 2016 and 2017. Proud of our group. It was combined effort. We're really excited to be playing again tomorrow, Coach Mike Freeman said. We only had one day to prepare for this game. And Coach just kind of said it's going to come down to fundamentals. Making the hard plays, taking a charge, getting loose balls, Yamilkoski said. I thought the team put a really good effort into that and didn't make too many mistakes this game. Well, Yamilkoski led the way in scoring, as he has all season, showing off an adept shooting touch in a 21-point outing. Like Lemker, being finished with 19, leading Xavier with 7 rebounds. He patiently but continually worked his way through the lane on penetration. I do that because I can create for others, he said. I like to see my teammates get the ball and score. Xavier's defense was good enough, especially in the second half. Heelan got back into the game with a 19-point second quarter that inched it within 30-27 to at the break. But the Saints did a nice job of slowing down Heelan's best players, a 6-8 junior Matt Knoll. He had 15 points but only 5 in the second. Guard Carter Kuehl led Heelan with 26 points. Of course, Lemker said, when asked if he thought coming into the season Xavier could do what, he is, what it has done. We're a great basketball team. We have some good players. We play hard. Yeah, I knew this was possible. All right, one final story here before we uh, close the lid on this thing. Northland advances with miraculous comeback. Links rally from 16 down in the fourth quarter to beat Remsen St. Mary's. This story by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette, Dateline Des Moines. They've won an amazing 208 of their last 215 games. And of those 208, this one ranks at the very top of the improbability scale, has to. Down 16 points in the fourth quarter, having absolutely nothing going, their best player hobbling around the court and unable to do much of anything offensively because of a sprained ankle. The Northland Lynx suddenly and almost inexplicably found magic Wednesday night. Brecken bent Tin Bender's three-pointer with 30 seconds left capped a wild, out-of-the-blue 52-50 comeback win over Remsen St. Mary's in a Class 1A state tournament semifinal at Wells Fargo Arena. Today will be the sixth consecutive championship game appearance for North Lynn with a 26-0 record. And this one comes with pretty much house money. Top-ranked Grandview Christian, 26-0, is the Lynx Finals opponent at 1 p.m. in a rubber match. Just moments away, everyone. It's a repeat of last year's 1A championship game, which North Lynn won. Grand View beat North Lynn for the 2018 1A title. I've been around basketball a lot and seen some crazy things happen, probably crazier than this, North Lynn coach Mike Hilmer said, but not in this spotlight down at the state tournament. Where to begin? Tate Haugenberry was injured in the first half and scored only five points in the game for North Lynn. Unable to dribble, drive, and penetrate as usual, he gutted out the rest of the game anyway. A three-pointer by Alex Schrader gave St. Mary's with a 23-3 record and a 48-32 lead with 7 minutes and 38 seconds to go. A Hawks revenge. North Lynn beat St. Mary's in last year's semifinals. Was all but a certainty. But then... Shots finally started to fall for the Lynx, specifically trays from Benton Bender and Ty 
Flu hopped. They combined for nine of them, five from Flu hopped, four from Benton Bender. They finally started falling, Benton Bender said. At the end, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just shooting. They were going in luckily. St. Mary's got one final possession, but Jackson Bunker's heavily contested jumper at the buzzer missed. Just amazing, said Fluhop, who led North Lynn with 19 points. After this game, it's hard to doubt the Lynx, right? Nobody gave up, Hilmer said. We didn't panic. All right, well, with that being read and being said, this has been the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. It's the Friday, March 10th edition. This is Andrew Haupt filling in. Thanks for uh, sticking with me here. Great to be with you. Have a nice day, everyone. A nice weekend and straight ahead.